Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. For the past 18 months, the so-called Arab Spring has been underway in the Middle East and North Africa. At the start, at least in parts of the West, there were soaring hopes for freedom and democracy with the end of hardline regimes in nations like Egypt and Libya as they crumbled. Syria, for the past 12 months or so, has been in civil war. Up to 28,000 lives, it's estimated, have now been lost. The impact is far and wide. And what you won't see or hear on much of the news bulletins is the way, as my next guest claims, the Arab Spring is rapidly turning into a Christian winter. In the very region where the Christian story was first played out over centuries, author William Dalrymple fears the final death of Christianity in its Middle Eastern homelands within our lifetime. William is an award-winning historian and writer with a special interest in the Middle East, the Muslim world, and the Eastern Christian Church. As we continue to see the Arab Spring unfold, I think this is a really important conversation for us to have. William Dalrymple, welcome to Open House. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for your time. William, I think people here in Australia would be surprised at the extent to which the Christian community cohabitated with uh, the Muslim community, and the Middle East was perhaps a much safer place than we might imagine for Christians to exist over the past century. Correct. I wrote a book called From the Holy Mountain, which was about travelling around all the different Christian communities of the Middle East, which I, I wrote in the mid-90s. And at that point, it, particularly in Syria, one saw an amazing amount of shared sacred space. Uh, I saw Christians coming to sacrifice a sheep at a Sufi Muslim shrine, a, a concept very odd for us uh, in the West, but something that seemed totally unremarkable to the, to, to the Orthodox Christians who were doing it. They regarded Muslim saints as saints as much as Christian saints. Later, uh, on the same trip, I saw many, many Muslims coming to pray in a Christian church at St. Naya, where there's a miraculous icon uh, said to give uh, children to people who are, to, to, to women who are barren. They can come and pray in front of this icon for a night, and they miraculously conceive. And, and so in, in the monastery of St. Naya, and, and, uh, until very recently, you could see huge numbers of Muslims coming to evening mass in the church. This shared sacred space was something that's very common around the Middle East until recent times. Uh, I saw it in Egypt, I've seen it in Lebanon, I've seen it in Turkey. It's only really with the rise of this very hardline Wahhabi Salafi form of Islam over the last 20 years, sponsored by the Gulf states, particularly Saudi Arabia, uh, this new Puritanism, that composite mosaic is, is beginning to crumble apart. That and nationalism, the, the whole breakup of the Ottoman Empire in the, in the early 20th century with a whole range of multi-religious, multi-ethnic uh, provinces giving way to mono-ethnic states. You know, the Greeks were in Greece, the Armenians are in, in Armenia, the Bulgarians are in Bulgaria. This whole breakup of the Ottoman Empire uh, has, has exposed the Christians and, and things are very bad now. William, for much of the last 100 years, Syria was a reliable refuge for Christians in the Middle East. That's right. People are now so familiar with the idea of, of Islam being an intolerant faith that they forget that for most of the previous uh, two millennia, Islam has a, has a much better record of looking after minority religions than, uh, than the Christian West does. In the West, Islam was wiped out of Spain and, and Sicily, Muslims expelled by the Catholic kings. 
Jews were persecuted intermittently, uh, obviously culminating in the Holocaust. But uh, there was nothing comparable to that in the uh, Islamic world. And while Christians were often second-class citizens, uh, they were allowed to get on with their lives. And as late as the early 20th century, one quarter of the population of the Middle East was still Christian. This was, you know, 1,000 to 300 years after the death of the Prophet. And Syria was, was very typical of that. Syria uh, had a pretty good record with, with Christian minorities. When the Ottoman Empire was trying to exterminate uh, when the Young Turks were trying to exterminate the Armenians in 1915, many Armenians found refuge in Syria. In 1948, at the creation of Israel, many Christian and Muslim Palestinians who were expelled from their homeland found refuge in Syria. In the 1970s, many Lebanese Christians took refuge in Syria. Uh, and in this current decade, most of the Christians have fled Iraq, and many of them also found shelter in Syria. So Syria really has an exemplary record uh, looking after its Christian minorities. And the Assads encouraged this as they were themselves from a minority. What they effectively did was they managed to keep control of Syria by forming a coalition of minorities. Can I ask you what the invasion of Iraq nearly a decade ago now meant for the Christian community there and the ultimate fall of Saddam Hussein? because I think this is something that was hugely underreported. The regime of Saddam Hussein, unpleasant as it was in a, in, a, in a rich variety of ways, again was not bad for the Christians. The Ba'athists were, were secular. And uh, many Christians rose to the top of Saddam's regime. Tariq Aziz, his, his foreign minister, for example, was a Syrian Orthodox Christian. Now, again, when the Americans invaded and the whole of Iraq sort of descended into a sectarian bloodbath, that whole composite mosaic broke up in the most dramatic way. Christians were persecuted by newly radicalized jihadis. The Christians who tended by and large to be middle class, they were businessmen, pharmacists, chemists, jewelers, owned their own businesses by and large, found themselves targets of lawlessness, of, of, of sectarian attacks. And of the 350,000 Christians in Iraq when the Americans invaded, 250,000 fled. And lots of them took refuge in Syria. Most of them took refuge in Syria. Those that didn't get out to the West, many, I mean, a few went to Australia, some went to Sweden, uh, a few went to uh, Canada, some came to Britain. Uh, but the great majority ended up in Syria. And uh, throughout the last decade, anyone visiting Damascus could see large numbers of Christian refugees being looked after uh, on the charity, really, of the different Christian churches in Damascus. And I should stress that the churches in Damascus had very open displays of, of Christian Christianity in, in a way that was very unusual to see in the modern Middle East, uh, particularly coming from Turkey. If you've driven from Turkey, it was very striking the way that you know, in Turkey, the Christians keep their churches very discreetly. They don't wear crosses. They, uh, they keep their identity as blurred as possible. Uh, while you t cross over into Syria, and suddenly the huge bumper stickers of the Virgin on the back of people's cars, there's flashing neon lights of, of crosses from the domes of churches, scout troops carrying crosses through the Christian quarter of Damascus, this sort of thing. It's the positive side of Assad's regime. And Assad's regime, um, I don't want in any way to sound an apologist for it. It was a, it was a, a very brutal regime politically. Uh, opponents of Assad were rounded up and tortured without trial. Uh, there were labor camps, there were uh, millions of disappearances. It was, it, was a, it was a vile regime in a whole variety of ways, but it was secular, and the Christians were able to flourish there. The regime, for all its vile political qualities, had uh, allowed major cultural freedoms in a way that very few other Middle Eastern countries did. And as the upheaval that we've seen in Syria has uh, roared through that nation over these last 12 months... What's been the position or the, the fate of the Christian community there in Syria? As yet, there's been...
been very little that's happened which has directly targeted the Christians as Christians. Um, I mean, everywhere there's been lawlessness, even where there hasn't been fighting and shelling and, and people killed. There's been, you know, carjackings, robberies, and so on. And, and the Christians have suffered in that, as like everyone else, except that they are, you know, w- weaker and richer, so they're more vulnerable. But they're deeply aware that there is a rise of extremist groups working in Syria. Initially, it was a you know, democratic uh, revolution of uh, unarmed individuals asking for free political representation. It moved then to, a, you know, in a sense, a secular uprising attacking a, a, a brutal regime. Now you're seeing an infiltration of jihadis coming from uh, Iraq. Uh, Saudi intelligence is supposed to be training up a lot of and arming a lot of groups. And this makes the Christians very worried. They worried that they're going to suffer the same fate as their brothers in Iraq. Before, you know, the radicalization of Iraq, Christians and Muslims lived happily together. Afterwards, it became an impossible thing for Christians to carry on living in Iraq. Now, there's every reason to imagine that that could happen in Syria. Exactly the same pattern repeated, and, and the Christians are very worried. This is it's, it's a matter of fears rather than reality so far. There's been one area, Qusair, uh, an area uh, on the edge of Homs, where it's said that jihadis uh, expelled the Christian population who they accused of being informers for the regime. And there have been reports of robbings of churches and robbings of individual Christians. What about in Egypt? But in Egypt, uh, there's been worse. Uh, in Egypt, things are, uh, Upper Egypt particularly, uh, in, in the south of the country, there's always been quite a, a tense relationship between Coptic farmers and their Muslim neighbours, partly because you can use religion as a way of getting at your neighbours. If you are a Muslim and you, you're eyeing your Christian neighbour's land, you only got to kind of accuse him of blasphemy and you have a, an ideal opportunity to, you know, seize a field or drive him out or something. And, and I think, the, again, the lawlessness of the uprising in Egypt allowed a lot of old scores to be settled. Sectarian differences enabled many Muslims to get one up on their Christian neighbours and much less concept of shared sacred space, shared sacred festivals. Fewer Muslims are going to Christian festivals, fewer Christians are going to the Muslim festivals. There were also, you know, there were one or two horrific incidents where, for example, on one occasion there was a Christian march in Cairo protesting at brutality against Christians, and the army uh, ran down the protesters with armoured cars, and, and, and the army was never brought to book for that. You make the point that Christian communities in these regions remain mystified by the actions of Christian America. Why is that? America is often very ignorant about the realities of the Middle East. The strength of the Israeli lobby in America, which is a real thing, it's not a, uh, an anti-Semitic smear to say that AIPAC is the most powerful um, lobbying group uh, on Capitol Hill and that the Israeli lobby has huge influence in America. They have always targeted the secular Arab regimes as their principal enemy. There is you know, uh, no question that Israel's supporters in the form of the neocons were highly instrumental after 9-11 in, in targeting America's anger from Afghanistan, where al-Qaeda were actually based and where the 9-11 plot had actually been uh, formed, to Ba'athist Iraq, which actually had no link with 9-11 whatsoever. And, and, and I think the role of Israel's supporters and the neocons in that is, is unequivocal. America has always targeted the Assad regime, largely because the Assad regime was, was a very strong and resolute enemy of Israel. The more positive sides of the Assad regime, such as the treatment of religious minorities, played little role in America's calculations. America was perfectly happy to do deals and make allies with all sorts of vile dictators all over the world. Uh, But the ones that they were particularly opposed to in the Middle East were the ones that were the the fiercest opponents of, of Israel. William, how likely 
as you raise this prospect, is the final death of Christianity in these Middle Eastern homelands, that this may well happen in our lifetime? There's no question that the Christian population in the Middle East has sunk from around 25% in 1900 to around 10% of the Middle Eastern population by uh, about 2000, and today it's probably down to about 8%. There has been, uh, for a century, large-scale emigration of the Christians to Sydney, to uh, Melbourne, to Britain, Canada, some parts of America. People have been trying to escape persecution for, uh, uh, for over a century, and that is only likely to accelerate. Whether Christianity will actually disappear remains to be seen, and, and, and a lot depends on what happens in the next two, three years and, and, and what policies are adopted by Western governments. Uh, I mean, it seems to me perfectly possible that one can have a, a form of peaceful regime change in, in Syria, even now, that the negotiations can take place, the uh, elections can take place. The answer is not to arm extremist Salafist guerrillas and make the mistakes we made in Afghanistan. If you think of the joint operations performed by the CIA and Saudi intelligence in Afghanistan in the 1990s, they brought to power the Taliban. They brought to power the most extreme form of, uh, of resistance possible, because that is where the Saudis were channeling their money. We suffered the consequences of the rise of the Taliban, and we must make very clear and work very hard to make sure the same doesn't happen in Syria. If we replace the Assad, the vile Assad regime, which was secular, with the vile Salafist regime, which is Islamist, uh, we won't have helped anyone. We will have done the Christians of the region a huge disservice. Is it possible to sketch out a future, say in the next 10 years, as we see the Arab Spring unfolding and continue to change uh, nations in the Middle East, what it will be like in 10 years? I, mean, I think there's every reason to hope that if... But real democracy comes to the Middle East. If you get a, you know, a properly elected form of democracy in Egypt, in Syria, uh, in Iraq, uh, that there is a place for the Christians. The Christians are highly skilled. They are middle class, well-educated. Church schools have educated the Christian population um, to a high degree of refinement that makes them extremely useful citizens of these countries. So I think you know, it's in their interest to keep their Christian minorities. And there's every reason to hope that if, you know, that if tyrannical regimes are replaced by free democratic regimes, that there is a, lo a long-term future for Christianity in the Middle East. If, however, you see secular Ba'athist regimes replaced by extreme Salafi regimes, then it's extremely unlikely that, um, uh, that Christianity has, has any real future, and it's not impossible to imagine Christianity dying out in the Middle East in our lifetime. And how will those nations fare under that kind of scenario? Uh, it depends whether they follow, in a sense, the Saudi model or the Taliban model. One hopes very much they won't follow the, um, uh, either model, because uh, Saudi Arabia is a uh, monocultural country with very little religious or cultural freedom and a great deal of political repression. Taliban Afghanistan was even worse, with you know widespread abuses, uh, women suppressed and unable to go out to work or be educated. A very grim future indeed, I think, awaits uh, the Middle East if, if that kind of either of those kind of regimes uh, flourish over the next few years. And, and, and I think you know our policymakers have got to be a lot more far-sighted and have a lot more professionalism in their understandings and dealings. And, and you know we must resist quick fix solutions that, uh, that gets rid of uh, one uh, form of dictator only to be replaced by another. This is no help for anyone. 
uh, least of all the people in those countries. As I said in the intro, it's uh, been a very important conversation to have William Dalrymple. Very much appreciate your time. Thanks very much for joining us on Open House. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.